Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost, and I am as excited about today as I have been about anything in a long time. Uh, normally, when we're recording Signposts, I'm in sort of an open collar in the studio, and this morning I was putting a tie on, and I said to my <laughs> wife, I'm with George Will today, there is no way that I can do that without a tie. Uh, this is somebody who is one of my heroes and has been since I was a kid, uh, reading his column and reading his books. He's the author of a book such as uh, Statecraft is Soulcraft, really, really significant uh, and important book, and probably dozens uh, more. I don't know the exact count. Writes a twice-weekly uh, column on politics and, and all sorts of, of issues, really about uh, life and philosophy and foreign policy and domestic policy and everything else. And he has a new book this year called The Conservative Sensibility, which I have uh, in front of me right now uh, with book flags everywhere and highlights because really, really insightful, especially for our current moment. Mr. Will, thanks so much for joining me today on Signposts. I'm delighted to be with you. And, and the count is 15 books. 15. Okay. Yeah. All right. One, one of which on baseball sold more than the other 14 combined, <laughs> which tells you what the country's interested in. <laughs> well, I was telling uh, I was telling my wife this morning, it's not often that one remembers a book blurb, uh, especially for more than 20 years. But I remember the blurb that you did for, I think, Michael Barone's Dictionary of American Politics, uh, Handbook of American Politics he used to do, uh, that said something like, if the Bible is the sporting news of religion, then this volume is the Bible of politics. And I still remember <laughs> that uh, Still remember that blurb. Yeah, sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I have something in common in that we're, we're both uh, grandsons of pastors. Uh, uh-huh. I'm the grandson of a Baptist pastor. You're the grandson of a Lutheran pastor. You, you talk about it uh, in, in this book. And uh, you, you talk about Toward the end of the book, as you're talking about uh, religion and, and the place of religion in American life, that you consider yourself to be a, a low-voltage, amiable atheist, uh, which, which I thought was a striking sort of language because it's very evident as you read this that you're not the sort of atheist that many people are accustomed to the sort of Christopher Hitchens, religion poisons everything uh, sort of mentality. What do you think the, the place of religion ought to be uh, in, in public life? I'm uh, married to a fierce Presbyterian. Mm. I'm not sure there's any other kind of Presbyterian, <laughs> but she certainly is one. 
it seems to me the durable great religions of the world are durable because they speak to yearnings and curiosities and hungers that are common to human nature. Mm. And therefore, these religions, uh, particularly in our case, uh, the Judeo-Christian religions, and Christianity in particular, have supplied a moral vocabulary uh, for our conversation about how we live together. They've supplied images and stories and parables that teach and uh, have really provided the undergirding of democracy by infusing the Western world with uh, individualism, that is, with the idea that each individual is uh, is important and as important as any other individual. And it is from that great assertion from Palestine 2,000 years ago that democracy eventually evolved. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of debate that goes on sometimes between believers and unbelievers uh, about the American project and about the American founding. So there will be some Christians who will sometimes attempt to to claim and to baptize all of the founders, which is a really tough uh, task to do, as you know. And there will be uh, sometimes there will be secularists who will say, no, Christianity had nothing to do uh, with the founding of of this country. It's it's simply Enlightenment uh, philosophy. How how ought we to think about that? In my book, I say quite clearly that if if you want to go back to the the moment, I think, when the Western world began to turn toward individualism and a, a government's respective of the moral being of the individual, you go to Luther at the Diet of Arms saying, mm. here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, the primacy of conscience was the great uh, Lutheran contribution, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm the grandson of a Lutheran minister, was the great Lutheran contribution to the civic life of the Western world. And the idea that uh, I sometimes hear that religion has no place in public life, what country are they talking about? Mm. I mean, we were founded by people who came here for the free exercise of religion. We have a constitution and a declaration of independence that radiate uh, what the Judeo-Christian tradition has done for the world, which is to, again, assert the primacy of the individual and the preciousness of the individual. Mm. Now, you've mentioned individualism a couple of times, and it, it strikes me that often when we hear the, the word individualism these days, it's negative. Uh, yes. People speak of the atomic. Which is why I've mentioned it twice already. <laughs> <laughs> atomic individualism and and the sense of um, disconnection and loneliness and lack of solidarity that we see in American life right now. So often, when people talk about uh, suicide rates or opioid uh, addiction and, and that sort of thing, they talk about it in relationship to individualism as well as just the sort of hedonism uh, and, and so forth that we might see. However, one might define that. Why do you use individualism in a positive term? In a positive because way? because the alternative is an attempt by collectivists and statists and others to sink the individual into groups, mm. into tribal thinking, into tribal behavior, and to say that human beings have no constant human nature; that we are merely creatures who acquire whatever culture we're situated in, and therefore. It is the role of government to, by manipulating the culture, manipulate human beings. 
to create the new Soviet man, the new German man, whatever. We've had a lot of bloody experience with this in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, what by asserting a constant human nature seems to me essential for defending the dignity of the individual against those. And they are legion and they are multiplying who are eager to say that human beings are not uh, individuals. They are cultural clumps, uh, mere sponges soaking up the culture surrounding them. Mm. And I I think this is the most dangerous thing that political philosophy can do is to preach that individualism is a chimera. Mm. I really resonated as a High voltage, amiable evangelical with uh, <laughs> with what you wrote about human nature because uh, in this book because it it seemed to me uh, to be very consistent with an Augustinian view of humanity as both created in the image of God, having dignity and also fallen. So that one one approaches humanity with a skepticism toward perfectibility, but also with a sense of, of dignity. Would you agree that there's some consonance there with that that view of human nature? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Isaiah Berlin, the great uh, political philosopher at Oxford uh, mm-hmm. in the second half of the 20th century, Isaiah Berlin said the the tragedy of liberalism is that uh, it is simply a fact that people define the ultimate good differently. And therefore, we have the political challenges to get people who define the good differently to live congenially with each other. And that's that's really the American project more than any other nation's project, because we, we have been so welcoming to people from around the world, particularly who came here so that they could define the good on their own. Uh, so you and I are in hearty accord. You know, sometimes when I read fellow conservatives talking about uh, basic principles, sometimes there's almost a an explicit or an implicit skepticism toward the Declaration of Independence, uh, the preamble of the Constitution, uh, sort of uh, the the very idea of, of natural rights. Not for you. Uh, you you spend a a great deal of time talking about that vision of humanity at the, at the founding of this country. Why is that important for us to reflect on right now? Because the American premise is that, A, there is a constant human nature. B, there are certain rights essential to the flourishing of creatures with a nature such as ours. And C, to protect those rights, but to have a government not so strong that it threatens those rights, we have to have a government with a constitutional architecture such as that that James Madison and the framers bequeathed us so that the government would be strong enough to protect our rights, not so strong to threaten them. And the premise is first come rights, then comes government. Mm. The most interesting word in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. The progressive overthrow of this, it's the progressive revolt against the founders, has been, A, remarkably forthright. I give Woodrow Wilson and the rest great credit because they didn't uh, sugarcoat it. They said the founders were wrong. The founders uh, were wrong about human nature. Uh, And they've been remarkably successful. Woodrow Wilson said to the American people, do not read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration. They'll only confuse you. It's just Fourth of July pitter-patter. Because 
Uh, human beings, uh, uh, natural rights are a fiction. Rights are dispensations from government. Uh, government carves out areas of autonomy that it is in government's judgment we can we need and can exercise well. Uh, so in the progressive view, first comes government and then comes rights. And that's what uh, we're rebelling against. As you know, in my book, I say that American political philosophy, and in a sense, Western political philosophy, is an argument between two Princetonians, James Madison of the class of 1771 and Woodrow Wilson of the class of 1879. Very stark differences about human nature from which flows all kinds of political judgments. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation right now about liberalism, not meaning progressivism, but sure. uh, but liberalism in terms of uh, classical uh, Western uh, liberalism. And there's some people in, say, the, the first things in its current iteration, not the Richard John Newhouse tradition, but its current iteration, uh, and others who would say liberalism is the problem and that uh, liberalism itself inevitably leads to cultural rot, progressivism, uh, all, all sorts of, of things. What should our response be to that mentality? Our response should be, first of all, to say proudly and forthrightly that uh, conservatives, at least of my stripe, are the legatees of classical liberalism. That is the view of human beings as rights-bearing creatures and that uh, their exercise of those rights and their choices is inherent to our understanding of their dignity. Mm. Second, uh, we should say, if a liberal society, which has limited government, results in anomie and alienation and atomization, that's not liberalism's fault. That's the fault of the civil society uh, and the institutions that are supposed to flourish service organizations, churches, synagogues, mosques, etc., that are supposed to provide the, the, the leavening of our life. What is dangerous is when we look to the government to provide the leavening institutions, because that, that, is, that way because, is, is the road to a, a kind of totalitarian politics, that we should find meaning and we should find the beauty of life in, in political organizations or political involvement. What liberalism does is provides ample space for private institutions to flourish. And what we don't want is a government so big that it's like an enormous tree in the shade of which nothing else can grow. Mm. Well, just as, as the word liberalism has come under uh, some, some uh, assault in recent days, the, the word capitalism has as well. Of course, there's a, a resurgence of, of people, especially millennials and, and Generation Z uh, people who would identify themselves as socialist. And uh, there are lots of people who say, but just look around. Capitalism hasn't worked. Uh, look at what we, what we have here. You, you spend a lot of time talking about this, and, and I found the section in the book where you talked about uh, comparing an unhealthy, not doing well uh, American of today to Rockefeller uh, yes. to be really fascinating. Well, yes, it's a thought experiment. In, in, in uh, 1916, there was a surge in the value of Standard Oil stocks, and John D. Rockefeller became America's first billionaire. And that was a billion 1916 dollars, so it was serious money. My thought experiment is this. Uh, 
suppose I would make you as rich as Rockefeller in 1916, but you have to live in 1916. Mm. Don't even think of getting a toothache. If you get sick, the great invention of the 20th century, uh, antibiotics, is not going to be available to you. You can buy the best wristwatch in the world, but it won't keep as good time as the Timex you can buy at the CVS in, in America today. Don't look for to go out and enjoy your wealth at Chinese, Tibetan, Vietnamese, Indian restaurants, because there weren't any then, because we hadn't been open to the, the free flow of global cultures. By the time I explain this to groups I'm talking to, not a hand goes up when I say how many of you would take the bargain, go back and live in, in 16. No, the fact is capitalism doesn't just make us better off, although demonstrably it does. There was essentially zero economic growth between the, the, the first cavemen and the late 18th century when the ideas of important to capitalism were born first in, I think, in Amsterdam and crossed the English Channel to England, where Mr. Watt gave us the steam engine. And suddenly, economic growth accelerates almost straight up. It makes us better off. It makes us better also, because it enforces certain virtues, thrift, industriousness, cooperation, deferral of gratification, uh, and individualism, individual striving. But most of all, capitalism requires and enforces and encourages cooperation and politeness, civility. Walk into any American store, shop, restaurant. What's the first thing you hear? How may I help you? Mm. It is a polite society that is uh, that has capitalist spontaneous order of cooperating individuals. Well, you know, there's a lot of concern right now, a lot of fear uh, and worry about mechanization, about artificial intelligence, about uh, industries that have sort of disappeared in, in large uh, sectors of American life and manufacturing and coal and, and other places. Should we, should we be as nervous as we are uh, about the future when it comes to those major disruptions? No, I think that this is a sign of the social hypochondria to which Americans are prey. Mm. The fact is, uh, along came the internal combustion engine and away went the urban horse, which was an enormous gain for urban sanitation, one of the great developments of the 20th century. Away went the buggy makers and the saddle makers and all the rest. So people instead made cars. And when cars become less important, as they are becoming less important, people will make other things. The idea that we can, should, want to aspire to freeze America today, to give up on dynamism, to give up on change, this is where it is, to me, dangerous and, and sad, really. Uh, what has made America so great is its wholesome welcoming of an open future. Conservatism in Europe was born in reaction against change, particularly the French Revolution, and it's defended a kind of throne and altar, merging of religion and the state, hierarchy, blood and soil kind of patriotism. Mm -hmm. When conservatism crossed the Atlantic, it was transformed. Our conservatives welcome change, rejoice in it, uh, and and say uh, effectively, change is tr we can handle change, and we can make a better world only by 
welcoming the slow departure of uh, of old in- old institutions and industries and all the rest. Uh, a Washington writer, Virginia Postrel, I believe it was, said that the story of the Bible in one sentence is God created man and woman and lost control of events. Well, we kind of like the lack, lack, loss of control. Mm. And in fact, so does the Bible. The Bible says, you're free, make the best of it. Mm. Uh, use freedom well, but use it and be free and accept that that means an open future. You know, one of the things that I notice um, in talking to people on the right um, in American life right now is that there's not a lot of conversation about some of the things that would have been the case, say, when you were working with Ronald Reagan and and Barry Goldwater and others about free markets and and those uh, sorts of things, balanced budgets, but a lot of um, anti-immigrant sentiment that would take place, not just in in North America, but really around the world right right now. How should we think about that as we think about uh, immigrants and and refugees and and those uh, sorts of questions and why they raise uh, temperatures to the degree that they do? Well, I think some people feel threatened by immigration, whereas, in fact, they should understand something. First, that we're all children of immigrants, every one of us here. Franklin Roosevelt was once, as he was, when he was president, he was giving a talk to the daughters of the American Revolution, and he began by saying, fellow immigrants, mm. making a good point. I mean, they were immigrants, too. Second, we have an aging population. Uh, that's a good thing. We're uh, we're living longer, and uh, the elderly are, are, are an ever-increasing portion of our society. I'm one of them. I'm 78 years old. And uh, we need immigrants as much as the immigrants need us. Immigrants who come to America often at great hazard to themselves uh, know why they're here. Mm. They have a great appreciation of America. Immigration is an entrepreneurial act. It's people uprooting themselves and taking a risk for the betterment of their families. Jeb Bush, when he was running for president, got uh, ridiculed for saying something quite true and profound, that immigration is an act of love. People do this for their, because they love their families and, and want better futures for them. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's very unbecoming of the United States to go into a defensive crouch mm. and say, we have, we're, we're, afraid of people who are eager to come in here and go to work. We have six million unfilled jobs in this country right now. Mm. We're not at full employment. We're more than full employment. Mm. Uh, so uh, it, it, it seems to me unbecoming of, of, of a great confident nation to worry about this. Now, part of this is some people think, well, these people are coming from uh, 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 societies that didn't have democratic governance. They don't understand our ways. Well, the same thing was said of the Irish. Mm. Then the same thing was said of the Eastern Europeans. And we've been through this before. And uh, I I do wish people would read a little more history. When I'm king of America, (laughs) I'm going to say the only permissible college major is going to be history (laughs) so that we don't have to invent the wheel every generation. Maybe with a minor in baseball, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I let you go, Mr. Will, I, you know, I told we started off by talking about uh, faith and, and Lutheranism and so forth. Of course, nobody can really, really know this about themselves. But what do you think it would take uh, for you to become a believer? What, what would you need to to see or to know? 
Well, that's a good. That's an excellent question. Uh, I grew up in a completely secular household. It wasn't anti-religion. The question just never came up because my father, the the son of the Lutheran minister, was not convinced. Uh, and uh, in fact, some of his doubts about religion turned him into a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois. That's a good question. Uh, uh, I, I've I've read C.S. Lewis fr- front to back. Mm-hmm. I've read uh, there, there are few writers in the world I admire more than Chesterton, particularly mm-hmm. orthodoxy and heretics. Uh, I've read the very best Cardinal Newman and all the rest. Uh, my, uh, my one of my two assistants in the office just got back from Rome. She's a young convert to uh, Catholicism. She was over for the. Uh, the canonization of Cardinal Newman. Uh, I suppose I'd, uh, the most I can say is keep an open mind, keep looking at uh, sunsets and grandchildren mm. and other evidence of the goodness of life. And uh, maybe at some point, the I'll say there's got to be an explanation for this that mm. is transcendent and theistic. Mm. Well, I pray for that because I am so greatly indebted to you, and I hope to be able to have many conversations in heaven, as well as the one that we've had today. (laughs) So I'll pray for that open mind. Uh, George Will, thank you so much uh, for your uh, contribution to uh, this country and your writing. It's been of of tremendous benefit to me, and I know to many of our listeners. Uh, The book is The Conservative Sensibility, Uh, George F. Will. Thank you, Mr. Will, for being with us today. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.